the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome, folks, once again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening, of course, to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Uh, We gather like this every weekend, and we're always so pleased when you uh, join in with us. Uh, So is um, uh, my engineer. His name is uh, Alan Dempsey. There it is. I knew it was Alan Dempsey. And, And Andrew Herdliska does the producing. In this first segment, we're going to have a chat with Susan K. Williams-Smith. She's in Columbus, Ohio, founder of Crazy Faith Ministries. Her book is out, Rest for the Justice-Seeking Soul. Susan, welcome to Central Florida. I hope you're doing well. How are you? I am doing well. How are you? I'm good. Rest for the justice-seeking soul. What does that title mean? What's the what's the story here? Well, I do a lot of social justice work, and of course, that means I work with a lot of people who do social justice work. And um, what I what I what I've come to know is that um, it is so wearying to try to to make justice happen in the world. That kind of seems to prefer injustice in a lot of ways, and. I watch people. I watch people work as hard as they can, only to go down to defeat. And I watch how it um, affects their spirit. And I knew how it affected mine as well. So I was um, one day reading this book by uh, Reverend William Barber, who was uh, head of the uh, um, Poor People's Campaign, the National Poor People's Campaign, the National Call for More Revival. And I was um, reading his book, and he talked about how when he was a little boy. On Sundays, his um, his grandmother, after dinner, would take all this food up and get, get with some of her friends in the neighborhood, and she would say, I'm going to go out to hope, H-O-P-E, hope somebody. And um, he, you know, being, you know, proud little boy, good in school, thought that she didn't know what she was talking about, and thought that she really meant to say that she was going to go help somebody. But she meant that. She wanted to go hope somebody to let people know that no matter how much they were struggling and whatever they were going through, there, there was always hope. Um, and I found that when I read that, there was a rest in my soul. And I thought, maybe what, what, what I should do or what I can do is write something um, to give people hope while they're doing this kind of work. So on that day, I started writing a, a meditation, and the first one was, you know, about hoping somebody. And since that day, and I think it was been like three years ago, three or four years ago that I, did, that I, that I started it, Every single Tuesday, I write um, a meditation for people who are, who are working. And it doesn't have to be just for people who are doing social justice work. The people who are just trying to make their lives work, period. Um, but something to make you understand that there is always hope, no matter how bleak things seem. So that's how it gets started. My uh, guest is Susan K. Williams-Smith. Uh, there are 90 daily meditations uh, in the book to help justice-seeking individuals to rest their minds and souls and to make time to care for themselves. Um, there are eight areas, you know, I'm, obviously we're not going to cover 90 daily meditations, but Susan, there are eight mm-hmm. areas um, that you seem to focus on, and I'm going to ask you about each one. Uh, so uh, tell us, uh, taking spiritual inventory seems to be a topic that you write about in these meditations. Uh, tell us more about that. Well, I think that um, no matter how uh, religious we are, no matter, you know, how, how religious we think we are, if you, I think, I believe that if you are really seeking to do God's work, there are times when you are not sure. You're not sure about where God is. You're not sure if God hears you. You're not sure if God cares. Um, you're just not sure. You're not, you know, it's like why the psalmist right? where are you? Uh, you know, I call out to you day and night, where are you? Um, so it's not a new phenomenon to be unsure, but doubt is a big part of faith. And so I think that we have to take 
uh, time to take spiritual inventory to see where we are and then be honest about when we are in a place of doubt. And it's not a bad thing. Doubt allows us space to grow. But if we don't, um, if we don't do that, if we don't take that inventory and we just keep plodding along the path, I think that we can kill our spirits. And I think I've seen and known people who have just walked away from God, from church, from spirituality, from it all because they've not been able to, um, to uh, reconcile their doubt with their faith. And so taking spiritual inventory is a way of making sure, taking a, 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 a check on where our faith actually is and what kind of work it needs. Now there's a second area uh, that comes through these uh, meditations, addressing the bitterness of our souls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, again, um and maybe this is a little bit naive, but I think many people um, in, in our walk with God, we think that because we believe in God, because we go to church, and because we, we, we think that life ought not happen, um, that life happens to everybody. We wonder why God doesn't just kind of come down and swoop his, his or her hand down and just take bad stuff away and make our, our lives easier. I've talked to... I'm a pastor myself, but I've talked to pastors who have just been just flabbergasted. I remember reading a book once where a pastor was really, 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 really beloved, and he said his faith was strong, and and he was, you know, he had a wonderful church. And then what happened is he had a daughter who came down with a with a disease, and it killed her. She died, mm-hmm. and he said it it stunned him so bad that he that he he couldn't. He was bitter in his soul. He was bitter. He was mad at God, and he couldn't understand why God would have let this happen to him when he was trying to do everything that he thought God wanted him to do. And he ended up leaving his pastorate and leaving the church. So I think that there are a lot of experiences that we go through in life that make us bitter, especially because we think that because there is God and because we say we believe in God, that life ought to be smooth and easy, and it is not that. Susan K. Williams-Smith is our guest, uh, Rest for the Justice-Seeking Soul. Uh, here's a third topic that you uh, seem to develop, Susan. Letting God be God. Yeah, and you know what? That is a difficult one because God being God doesn't often or doesn't always make us happy. God being God means God does what God wants to do, and God what God wants to do is, is, is too often not in, al- in alignment with what we want God to do or how we want God to act. And so God, being God, is fraught with these ups and downs, these hills and these valleys, and, um, and, and God, just God, because God can. So I have moments, for instance, when I wonder, you know, God being God. So I believe in this total sovereignty of God, and I believe that everything that was created was created by God, and I believe that the storms that come, come from God. So sometimes um, when the storms come, and, and, you know, if we were to get down into science, science, into science, we could say, well, storms come because of things that are going on in the climate, in the environment that human beings are doing. But the truth of the matter is, is that there's been bad storms throughout history ever since people have been alive. And God has allowed those storms to come, and God has allowed masses of people to die. God being God is... It's something that we have no control over and something that can make us very sad at times, but we have to let God do that and then work through what, what has happened. That's part of taking spiritual inventory. It's like, where are you in your relationship with God when you've lost everything or when a storm comes and takes everything that you've had or you lose a wife or a child? Where Where is, is God in your consciousness, and, and how do you rectify that? That's letting God do that, and it's not a pleasant experience a lot of times. Rest for the Justice Soul, 90 Meditations that Susan K. Williams-Smith has put together. Uh, Here's a fourth area that you write about quite frequently, Susan, meeting evil with compassion. (laughs) That is one of the things that makes Christians, like, so angry. You just get angry because of what, so so let me share that that, that, to me is a directive given by Jesus in the Gospels, and I just preached on it last week. We've got where Jesus says, I love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, which is crazy. It goes against every single thing that God has made us as humans um, to do and to be. But what, what, what I have found, and it's a difficult thing to do, but I have found that when 
and meet evil with compassion. It has a, a, a strange power to kind of lessen the, um, the, the enmity in the part of the person who's trying to take you down and take you out. Um, I remember a story that I read where um, it was during the 60s, um, during the Civil Rights Movement, and the, the, the firemen were out with the hoses on the kids and the, and the dogs, on the kids and the women, and I guess the fire chief or Bull Connor or somebody said to the firemen, this group of firemen who had been doing this, um, um, I guess on a different day, and he said to, to the fire chief to put the holes on the people, and the, and the fire chief just said, no, I'm not going to do it. And um, the, the, the fire department, if I remember the story correctly, the, the people who were out there with the holes, they just knelt. And I think um, that that wouldn't have happened if the people who had been um, being attacked had tried to attack back in kind, when we tried to meet this evil with compassion, it does something to the other person. My guest is uh, Susan K. Williams-Smith. We're talking about her book, Rest for the Justice-Seeking Soul. We've got another segment with Susan right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. My guest is Susan K. Williams-Smith. We're talking about her book, Rest for the Justice-Seeking Soul. Susan, here's another topic uh, that you write a lot about in your book, Becoming a Peacemaker. Yeah. Um, In the Beatitudes, it says, Blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, for they shall see God. And the peace, and a peacemaker, I've learned, is different than a peace lover. Most of us are peace lovers, which means that we will avoid conflict at all costs. But sometimes conflict is, is, is required. Peacemakers are those who are willing to risk conflict in order to bring about a bigger good, a major good. So that, to me, has always been a very important distinction. It's better the beatitude says to be a peacemaker, not to be a peace lover. Being a peace lover helps the status quo to remain. Being a peacemaker is what drives people to seek justice. Now, Susan, let's talk about this topic that you write a lot about. It's called committing to God. Uh, tell us about that. Well, we can make different commitments to different things and different institutions. Commit Commitment to God means that we... Decide to say yes to God in all areas of our lives. And again, that's very hard to do. Most of us won't, won't do that. But when you commit to God, or when we commit to God, it means that we say yes to God, even at the cost of, you know, if, if it makes us lose something, that's very important to us. And so when we say yes to God, then we are saying whatever that means, God, I will do it. And usually it means doing, okay, let me, let me back up and say that people want, say that they go to church, but I believe that we are called to be the church, and to be the church, we have to be committed to God and do what God would tell us to do. Now, Susan, let's get to the next topic that you write about, loving God enough to love ourselves. Uh, explain, that, ex- explain that to us. So many of us uh, do not like ourselves. So many of us think that we are mistakes. We don't love ourselves. We grow up with parents. We grow up in houses where we are told that we are not good enough, that, you know, um, that we don't make the great. And we grow up believing that stuff. We believe it, and so we become hurt people. And I was just sharing this morning with some friends that hurt people hurt people. Um, we have to love ourselves because we are created by God, and, and God doesn't um, uh, uh, require perfection. Maybe our mothers did or grandmothers. We, you know, our parents, grandparents, any, all of us have had parents and grandparents who have only been able to do and be what they have seen and what they have experienced. So many of us grow up coming out of our homes thinking that we're some type of a mistake, and we're not. To have the courage to love ourselves frees us from our past and makes us able to be in relationship with God in a kind of way that will help change our own lives and the lives of people around us. And Susan, uh, let's get to another major topic of your book. Learn to thrive when you have been merely surviving. Uh, I want to hear about that. Well, again, I think this is kind of related to the, the, the point that I just made. Because many of us um, believe that we are not as worthy or as deserving as other people, and we compare ourselves to other people, many of us hold ourselves 
that. We just, you know, we get up in the morning, we go to our jobs, we come back home at night, and we don't do anything to explore who we are. We don't believe that we have talents. We don't believe that our talents are worth anything. And so instead of taking the plunge and, and trying out all these things that God put in us, which makes us thrive, we just go home. We go home, we sit in a chair, we have the same routine day after day after day. And so too many of us die having never thrived. We just survived. We've gotten through the days. And life is supposed to be a whole lot more than that. Susan, what is spiritual inventory? And why do we need to yes. take it? How do we take it? Um, I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever just sat in a space and, and just been still with God. Mm-hmm. But I know if you, if you are, if you ever just sit still and just say, okay, God, okay, what, what, just what? Um, and it helps us to be able to, um, when we're doing that, to be still, to see if we even have an inclination to hear God, to even want to hear from God. We have to answer, like, really hard questions. Do I really want to hear from God? You know, is my spirit spoiled? Is my spirit wretched? Is my spirit... We have to be um, still enough and and and, and willing enough to um, to hear what God says, and God will speak to us. And I know you know this. God will speak to us in that silence, in that stillness, in that spiritual stillness. God will speak to us through any number of people, any number of events. We will see the answers that we're looking for and billboards, we'll see it on television programs, we'll see it, I'll hear it in what somebody says to us. And the only reason we'll know that is because we're in this place of inventory and God is speaking to us and now we have ears to hear. So it requires a type of stillness at the very beginning and then um, in that stillness, having enough room in our spirits to hear from God in ways that we've never done before. Susan, you mention that God is our elbow grease. What's that mean? What's that mean? That means that God is the strength that we need um, to do the things that we don't want to do. Um, God gives us strength that we don't have on our own. Um, I, I have a, a person I know who was going through um, a very, very bad uh, bout with cancer and the chemotherapy by herself. Um, she, she knew she couldn't do it. But you know what she kept doing? She kept saying, and the only thing she kept saying is, God, 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 God. And, and she said, because she got through that chemotherapy, and she said that that gave her a sense of calling on God. She didn't even know where God was. She didn't know if God cared. But God gave her the strength to even say yes to the chemotherapy. I'm probably not doing a really good job of explaining it, but God is a strength that we have. You know how the psalm says God is our, 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 our very present help in danger. God is our refuge and strength. That is the elbow grease that gives us the strength to do what we have to do. And it helps get us through the rough places. That phrase comes from something I remember my mom saying when I was little, when I was playing in the bathroom one day, and I, I, just, I guess I didn't get something up off the floor. And she said, you know, you have to use elbow grease. I didn't know what the heck she was talking about. And I can remember going to the, um, to the bathroom cabinet and getting up on a stool and looking, <laughs> looking for elbow grease. <laughs> she, said, no. she said, no, no, no. No, it's, it's in your spirit, Susan. It's in your spirit. And it makes you push harder. That divine elbow grease makes us push harder to get things out of our lives and out of, out of our way that don't need to be there. Susan, how do you stay strong in your, <clears throat> in your faith? I don't stay strong. I have moments when I'm terribly weak. I have uh, moments when I want to walk away. I've had moments when I'm just, okay, I don't, I don't know what I, I don't know if you believe, or I don't even know if you exist. That I, I've had my moments. But the only, um, so I don't say that I'm strong, but you know what I do say I am? I'm persistent. And the reason I'm persistent is because I've known, um, I've watched my parents, I've watched my relatives, I've watched people in history get through stuff that I don't think they ever could have gotten through if they hadn't had something higher than themselves to, to lean on. I remember that, and I, and I try to imitate, really, what they've done. But I don't, I'm not strong all the time. I'm strong at times, and I'm very weak at other times. Susan, I want you to tell us about <clears throat> Crazy Faith Ministries. What's that mean? Well, I wrote, I wrote this other book called Crazy Faith, um, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Lives, because when I read the Bible, and I love the Bible, but I think the, the stories in there are funny. Some of them, they're just funny. And I remember one day reading a story of Moses, um, and he was leading the Israelites away from the Egyptians, and they're standing at the edge of the Sea of Reeds, or the Red Sea, 
And, you know, so God tells them to stick his rod out over the sea, and it's going to, and it's going to, it's going to divide. And I remember laughing because, you know, I'm thinking that he has all these people who he's fled through the wilderness, they're hot, they're tired, they're hungry, they're scared, and they get to this sea, and they don't know what they're, what they're going to do, and Moses is standing there with, I, I call it a stick, holding a stick over this water, this vast expanse of water, and they say, well, what in the world are you doing? And Moses says, I'm holding a rod over the water, because that's what God told me to do. It is the funniest image to me, and we don't know because of the way the Bible is written. We don't know how long they stood out there. I do have a an idea that people being people were not so different then as they are now. They probably talked about him. They probably thought he had a mental illness. They thought he was tired, but he stayed there. He held that rod out over the sea, and of course, the story says that the sea parted. Um, and then I laughed again when I had the image in my mind that the sea had parted. And in my mind, it's like Cecil B. DeMille, these two great big columns of water. And so now the Israelites can go through. But now the people are looking and they're saying, well, who's going through first? I'm not going in there. You know, and I can see Moses just kind of standing there because it's, it's daunting to think that you can walk through two columns of water and get to the other side and get to safety and get to freedom. And so um, when I read that story, I just laughed out loud, and I just went through um, the Bible and found different stories that required external or ordinary faith and just kind of tried to uh, let people know that that kind of faith is the faith that makes the world change. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh-huh. Susan, uh, tell us, how does our independence keep God's world away from its ideal? You understand what I'm saying? No. Can can you break it down a little? Yeah, uh, we have a tendency to be uh, independent in our uh, in our life and independent of God, uh, and and yet that's not God's ideal. So so I just want you to talk about this independent attitude that most people have. I can make it on my own. Uh, yeah. I can yeah. carve my own way through life. Uh, what are your thoughts? I I think number one, it is a grave and and widespread um, issue, not only in this country but around the world. That I think that we put God on the periphery so much until something happens in our lives, and then we fall on our knees and we call out to God. But when we get up, when we get out of those situations, we forget how heavily we leaned on God. And really, I think it has something to do with the transcendence of God. God is so far away, we can't see God, uh, we can't hear, we don't look for God, we don't want God's interference because we want to be what we want to be. We think that we can, you know, we're like um, uh, teenagers in the spiritual world. And, and you know, when you're a teenager, you think you don't have to listen to your parents. You think you know everything. And I think we know every. I think that we think we know everything, and we peripheralize God. Um, and it's a part of how God made us. God gave us this free will, and with our free will, we choose when we're going to lean on God, and we choose when we're going to ignore God. And uh, unfortunately, we ignore God more than we should um, because we believe we can make it. And if we do make it, then we say, well, that's, that's proof I can't. But we always, every single person, it seems like, comes to a place where they have to have a reckoning, and they know that where they are, they're not going to get out of it or around it unless they lean on God. And it happens to virtually everybody. My guess is... Uh... <laughs> Susan K. Williams-Smith. She's in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, Wears many, many hats. An ordained minister, a musician, a writer, an activist living in Columbus, Ohio. How do you get your life organized every day, Susan? Give us some tips. (laughs) I'm a really disciplined person, so I have a schedule. I really do have a schedule that I, I try to keep to, and I uh, just because there's just so much going on. I, so really, the, the short answer is I have a schedule, and I try to keep to it. Susan, what is one <laughs> message you would like to share with those who are struggling, oh, perhaps with a racial or class or gender oppression? Uh, what's the What's your message to them? You know, I just. I think that the only way you get the racial class and ethnic oppression really is to go back and hold on to God because the world, the world, not just this country, but the world has an issue with all of that. 
uh, women, black people, brown people, poor people, immigrants, everybody has an issue with that. And the only way that uh, you can survive, the only way you can survive is to believe that there is someone greater than you um, in the midst of all the stuff that's causing you so much pain. It's the only way that people have got to, um, have gotten through oppression from the, from the beginning of time. They just believe in God. Some people make it through. Some people do not. But whoever makes it through continues to believe and teach the lessons that if it's not God that you're leaning on, you're not going to get through it. We can't. The people who are oppressed can't fight oppressors with the weapons that the oppressors have. Our weapon, our tool, our comfort, our strength is God. That's all I can say. It's, it's, a, it's a daunting thing to have to do. But if that without God, you don't make it. You just don't. Susan K. Williams-Smith has been our guest. Susan, it's really nice to talk to you. Congratulations on your book. And I know it will be of uh, real value to people. Thanks. I'm so glad we could chat. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Take good care. Susan K. Williams-Smith is our guest. Uh, We have another segment here for you folks on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We get together like this every weekend. Uh, right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. And obviously, we're always very, very pleased uh, when you take time to plug in with us. So, we'll be right back following these messages. Stay with us. Our guest in that first segment was Susan K. Williams-Smith, uh, talking about her book, Rest for the Justice-Seeking Soul, Keenan Bridges, is the senior pastor of Grace and Peace Global Fellowship in Tampa. Uh, His book is out. It's called School of the Miraculous. Uh, Well-written, Keenan. I'm so glad you can join me. How are you doing? Thank you, sir. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the show. Why was it important for you to write this book? Uh, You know, uh, in my studies and in my research and traveling the world and Speaking as a conference speaker and evangelist, I go to countries all over the world. I've been to 26 countries in the last probably two or three years. And um, one of the things that I've come to understand, especially in the Western world, there's a tremendous gap in most believers between what they read about in the Bible and what they actually see in their lives as Christians. And in addition to that, one of the issues is that there's a a percentage of Christians in the church that believe that miracles don't exist anymore. Uh, The the theological term for this is called cessationism, and it is the belief that the miracles, the signs, the wonders have ceased. And uh, I tell people all the time that we know that evil is still in the world. You know, Satan has continued, so it would only... Uh, bear to reason that if if Satan is still working, truly God must be still working in the world today. So that was one of the main reasons that I wrote this book. Keenan, uh, there are some insights on topics that you really dive into. Uh, there's seven in particular uh, that I find uh, most interesting, uh, and I want to dwell on that. The first one is simply God's purpose for miracles— uh, can you uh, tell us more? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, we see the outline for this in Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 16, which is a very controversial text. Uh, but Mark 16, it talks about uh, the commissioning of the disciples. We know in Matthew 28:19, we're to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. Then in Mark 16, it gives us a prototype for this, and it says that, the Lord was working with them, confirming his word with signs and wonders, and that these signs would follow them to believe. And I believe that the purpose for miracles is to confirm the message of the kingdom of God. It is to confirm the gospel. It is to demonstrate the power of God and the love of God, because when God heals the sick, uh, it is to show us that, number one, that the kingdom of God has victory over sickness, But number two, that he loves his children. He loves us, and he wants to show us how real he is. And this is one of the main purposes for miracles. It's not just so that we can be entertained, but it's so that we can advance the kingdom in a biblical way. Now, Keenan, here's a second area, second insight I want you to expand on. 
developing a supernatural culture. Uh, what does that mean? Yeah, so a culture, when we think of the term culture, culture is the pervasive uh, mindsets, customs, attitudes of a particular group of people, right? So when the Bible talks about that we are to seek first the kingdom of God, Matthew six thirty three, and his righteousness, you know, that, that word is often translated his way of doing things. So when we talk about culture, we're talking about the way we do things, right? So there's a kingdom culture, and this is a supernatural culture, and we must we must tap into that culture if we want to see a lifestyle of miracles. And uh, he Jesus is at the center. He's the king. And so we seek him with all of our hearts, and all of these things will be added to us. So when we proclaim the kingdom of God, God manifests the kingdom in the form of miracle signs and wonders. And this is a, a not just an event, but it's a culture or a lifestyle that we must cultivate in our churches and in our personal lives. Now, let's get to this third area that seems to be prevalent in your book, breaking the stronghold of fear. Explain that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of people are afraid. You know, there's a lot of trepidation. You know, uh, many people want more. They want to go deeper in God, but they're afraid uh, that, that they won't see the manifestation. What if I pray for someone and they don't get healed? What if I step out and, and try to evangelize and I get rejected? There's so many fears that people are overwhelmed by. And uh, Paul wrote it best in his prolific statement in Second Corinthians chapter 10. He says, that the weapons of a warfare are not carnal or earthly or physical, but they're mighty through God to the demolishing or pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations. And I believe that we must learn to pull down the stronghold of fear, demolish it with the Word of God. You know, the Bible says that He's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So we have to step out in faith and trust God to confirm what He said. My guest is Keenan Bridges. His book is called School of the Miraculous. Keenan, here's uh, the next area I want you to explain to us. Everyday miracles and the power of prayer. Yeah, you know, it's, it's really interesting because I had someone write to me and they said, well, they said a, a miracle by definition is, Sporadic. In other words, it doesn't, it doesn't happen all the time. So how can you walk in, in miracles uh, every day? But when we look at the ministry of Jesus, an example is John five nineteen, And Jesus said, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. But what things whatever he does, these also does the Son likewise. In other words, it gives us a pattern that Jesus stayed in the presence of God. He stayed in prayer. And as a result, he constantly witnessed the works of the Father. And this is why Jesus did miracles all the time. The Bible says he went about and he healed the sick. He went about and he cleansed the lepers, right? He he cast out demons. A third of Jesus' ministry was deliverance. And so we see the works of the Father being manifest because Jesus stayed in the presence of God. And this is why if we want to live a lifestyle of miracles, we have to stay in God's presence. We have to spend time in prayer. We have to spend time in the Word. And one of the ways we do that is by living in constant expectancy. We have to live in such a way where we're constantly expecting to see God do something. And it doesn't have to be, um, you know, fireworks, but it, it has to be an expectancy that, God, you're going to interrupt my day, and you're going to manifest yourself in a very tangible way, and I look forward to it. And I believe that's the key. Keenan Bridges has authored the book, School of the Miraculous. He's with us uh, from his home in Tampa, uh, where he pastors. Uh, Keenan, um, we've covered uh, four areas here. God's purpose for miracles, developing a supernatural culture, breaking the stronghold of fear, everyday miracles, and the power of prayer. Now, here's the next one I want you to expand on. Spiritual gifts and the miraculous. What's what's up here? 
Yeah, so, you know, this is one of my favorite areas to talk about. And in this uh, book that I've written, I really go into depth about uh, spiritual gifts because it's something that there's a lot of uh, uh, confusion around, you know. How do I operate in, in gifts of the Spirit? What are the gifts of the Spirit? So we see, and of course, First uh, Corinthians 12, Paul sort he's, he sort of gives us a, a layout or a blueprint for the spiritual gifts. He talks about nine spiritual giftings, um, if you want to call it that, in the New Testament church. I believe that we're not limited to those nine because we see other examples throughout Scripture that aren't listed in First Corinthians 12. However, it's definitely a good blueprint. And and when we look at the spiritual gifts, for example, a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom or prophecy, you will find that miracles, which is actually one of the gifts of the Spirit, the gift of miracles is one of the gifts of the Spirit, but you'll see that miracles often operate in concert with spiritual giftings. And this is why the more aware you are of spiritual gifts and the more pursuant you are of spiritual gifts, the more you're going to see the manifestation of the supernatural in your life. Paul gives this example of prophecy. He says that when you prophesy, the secrets of the hearts of men is revealed, and the people will know that of a truth, God is in you. And so this is a supernatural uh, uh, working of the Spirit of God through a person or a community of people that demonstrates the reality of God. And that's what spiritual gifts are all about. They're not just about puffing us up, but it's about glorifying God. And when we learn to walk in spiritual gifts, we're going to see an increase of the miraculous in our lives. In this book, School of the Miraculous, uh, Dr. Keenan Bridges is providing us with insight on a variety of topics. And Keenan, the next topic is the supernatural church. Uh, I need you to explain that. Well, you know, in God's formula, right, for 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 the church, for the body of Christ, right, we we see that um, uh, first. I'm uh, sorry, Matthew 16. Jesus uses this term ecclesia. It's actually it's actually a Greek word that didn't refer to a religious establishment. It was it was. Uh, commonly used as a political or governmental term, and it, it's com- it's a combination of two words: is the prefix "ek," which means "out" in Greek, and the word "koleo," "koleo," and it means to call. So the idea is that these people were called out to assemble and to legislate. And so Jesus goes further to say that He gives us the keys to the kingdom. That whatever we bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever we loose on the earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so we begin to understand that the kingdom of God is to be expressed through the church. And the church is a supernatural organism anointed by the power of God to bring the culture of heaven into the earth. And so uh, the church was always meant to be supernatural. We were never meant to be just an organization, but we were meant to be a living organism where we would actually engage the culture, and we would actually demonstrate to people uh, the power of Christ. And this is why Paul said over there in Romans chapter 1, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to them that believe. And so we definitely see that the church was always meant to be a place where people would come and encounter the supernatural presence and power of God um, consistently. And then there's a seventh theory I want you to talk about. Uh, five keys to activating God's power. Uh, what, yeah. What's the story here? Yeah, so five keys to activating God's power. This is a practical, uh, a practical sort of guide on how people can increase the presence and power of God in their lives, okay? Um, and I'll talk about the first one. You have to get the book to get all the keys. But uh, I'll talk about one of the first keys to releasing God's power and activating God's power in your life is obedience. It's very simple. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 19 tells us that we be willing and obedient will eat the good of the land. And so obedience is very, very important. And in order to obey God, we must hear his voice, right? We have to hear from God. We have to listen to him and, and, and discern what he's instructing us to do. 
So whether you're walking through the mall and God says, I want you to pray for that young lady, or I want you to minister to that man, uh, whatever it is, we know that when we act in faith and obedience, we're actually activating God's power. I tell people this way, action activates miracles, for there must be a faith step. There must be an there must be an action in order to see activation. My guest, and we've got another segment with him, his name is Dr. Keenan Bridges. He's in Tampa, where he pastors and writes. Uh, the book we're talking about is School of the Miraculous. Um, I just want to point out, folks, that we're trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando, and you can help. Uh, go up to the website, uh, orlandodreamers.com, and uh, check things out up there and just register uh, that you uh, would be a fan, uh, that you think this is a good idea and you'd like to be part of it, uh, orlandodreamers.com. We're trying to convince Major League Baseball uh, that Orlando is a good spot to be uh, for the future of, uh, of, of baseball. More with Keenan Bridges. We've got messages first on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. My guest is uh, Keenan Bridges. He's in Tampa where he pastors. And we're talking about his book, uh, School of the Miraculous. Keenan, um, can you explain uh, this uh, illustration in Chapter 13? It's the lamp analogy. Uh, our believers are the light of the world. Can you tell us more? Yeah, Jesus tells us uh, that we are the light of the world. So it's, it's funny, it's kind of a, a paradox, isn't it? Because he says, I'm the light of the world. And he turns to the disciples and says, and you are the light of the world. And he says, you don't take a lamp and hide it underneath the bushel, but you put it on a lampstand for all to see. So in reality, we are called by God to be lights. You know, it's interesting, when you look at a light in the first century uh, church, if you're talking about first century Israel, there was no electricity. It wasn't invented yet, right? <laughs> Thomas Edison hadn't done his thing, and so and so people didn't rely on any form of, of uh, electric current in order to generate light. What they relied upon was fire. So they would light a lamp with fire, right? In fact, the Greek word light there is where we get the word phosphorus. And so the idea is that we are to exhibit the fire of God. We are to demonstrate the fire of God to a dark world, to a dark generation. You see, people are going to psychics and mediums to get information, to get, to get knowledge, although tainted and perverse and distorted. But we are actually the, the true authentic source of illumination and truth in the earth. Because we carry the Word of God, which is the truth, and we carry the fire of God, which is the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we're supposed to let our light shine. Glory to God. We're supposed to let people see our good works, what we do, what we demonstrate, and bring glory to our Heavenly Father. Keenan, what is your advice about the most efficient way for people to read the Bible? It can be very confusing. It can be overwhelming. Uh, so what do you tell them? Well, the number one thing you have to do is I tell people this all the time. When you approach the Scriptures, never approach the Scriptures with the presupposition that you already know, okay? You have to approach the Bible as if you are a blank canvas. In other words, don't just read the Bible. Let the Bible read you, okay? That's number one. And number two, approach it as a student versus a teacher, you know, maybe you have a maybe you're a pastor, maybe you're a Bible study leader, and a lot of times they we're going to come up with great sermons and messages. But I don't I don't necessarily subscribe to that ideology. I believe that we should approach the scriptures, allowing the word to teach us, allowing the word to enlighten us. And a very practical thing is that, you know, um, me personally, I don't use a lot of um, commentary when I read the Bible. I prefer to get a nice lexicon or a good concordance or whatever version of the Bible you're reading, King James or ESV, uh, NASV, whatever you like. Get you a nice uh, concordance or, or some sort of uh, 
uh, a dictionary where you can get the cultural context of the scriptures, and then you, I think you'll have a stronger foundation when you read it. And then at least read a chapter a day. You know, you read it and then kind of study it and write notes and mull over it, and I think you'll gain a lot from that. What advice do you give to people about a disciplined prayer life? Now, that's a great question. Um, there was one evangelist that was asked the question, how long do you pray? He says, well, I pray about 15 minutes. And they say, well, you pray 15 minutes? This was the great Smith Wigglesworth, the healing evangelist. And, and he says, well, no way you pray only 15 minutes. He says, yeah, but I never go 15 minutes without praying. A Thessalonians tells us to pray without ceasing. Ephesians 6 tells us to pray with all prayer. So in other words, we should live a lifestyle of prayer. You know, you wake up in the morning, let prayer be the first thing you do, spending time with God, talking to Him, uh, spending time in His presence, and then let it be the last thing you do, and, and everything in between. You know, every every moment of the day to spend time praying, meditating, and and, uh, and pondering the scriptures, and the Lord will begin to speak to you very clearly and give you the, the, the leading and guiding that you need for your day. Keenan, why is it so hard for Christians, generally, uh, to share their faith and lead other people to Christ? Well, there are two main reasons. The first one is fear, okay? We live in a, a, a culture where a lot of times we're a afraid to step out. We're afraid to be rejected. We're afraid to be hurt. We're afraid to be uh, ostracized, right? It's the fear of, of persecution that comes along with sharing your faith. And w- within that is self-consciousness and self-centeredness. We live in a society where we're kind of focused on ourselves. You know, we're kind of uh, concerned about us, right? But if you realize that every day people are going to hell, because they don't know the truth, they don't mm. know the Savior, um, that that would really challenge us to make sure that we step out of ourselves and allow God to grant us the boldness to share our faith. And a real simple prayer, Lord, give me the boldness to share the gospel. And he'll answer that prayer every time. Why is it so hard for us to share Christ with people in our own families? Do you find that to be true? <laughs> yeah. Because they know us, right? <laughs> they know us. They know us better than anybody else. They know our weaknesses. They know our uh, our history, our past. And it goes back to the first reason. Sometimes uh, uh, the, the familiarity, the familiarity of family, can be intimidating. Because you know, who are you to share this with me? I mean, I used to grow up. I was on the playground with you, right? But it's 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 something that we have to understand that when we're born again. According to Second Corinthians 5.17, we're new creatures, we're new creations in Christ. So we are not the same as what we were. We're not the old, but we're new. And we have to really embrace that new reality and realize that, yes, our family may know our history, but really they don't understand the mystery, which is Christ Jesus. The Bible says the mystery that was hidden from ages and generations, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. So we have to be willing to step out of our comfort zone and even get in our, our family members' faces at times and say, hey, you need to know the same. You need to know the Lord and be willing to trust God for the outcome. Dr. Keenan Bridges is our guest, and he's a pastor in Tampa. Uh, the name of the book is The School of the Miraculous. Uh, Keenan, tell us your background, where you came to know Christ, and, and when did you make the decision uh, that you wanted to be a pastor? What happened? Oh, well, the, the, the second answer is kind of tricky because I didn't make the decision that I wanted to be a pastor. <laughs> that decision was made for me. But um, I came to faith, really came to faith at, at, in um, 1996. And uh, I definitely, as a young man, surrendered my life to Christ and, and, and was filled with his spirit. And I began to share my faith, even on the streets. I began to go and tell people about Jesus. I would go to the worst neighborhoods in my town in Atlanta and share the faith with people, and people were getting saved. That year I won the Evangelist of the Year Award for my church, which was a, mm. a large congregation. And um, 
But I began to just share my faith with people and really see the power of God move in my life. I went to school, and I kind of began my wilderness journey. Uh, through the wilderness, I, I sort of, you know, some people say, say it this way, the wilderness will either make you or break you, or it made me. It made me know that what I believed was real. And uh, when I when I sort of got back in the swing of things, uh, went on to marry my beautiful wife, and we we moved. We were in Tampa, Florida, and I was uh, part of a little small congregation uh, as a worship leader. And God began to speak to me and tell me that He wanted me to start a church. Now, I didn't want to do that, but He told me, and He had told me years ago to do it. But I ran from the call, and finally I said yes. And here I am, you know, years later, twenty six, twenty seven countries later almost every continent on this planet, and and uh, preaching the gospel of Christ, and also discipling and pastoring a wonderful and thriving, growing congregation here in Tampa. And uh, we're just excited. Every day I wake up, I just pinch myself because I feel like I'm living a dream. Keenan Bridges has been our guest. Uh, we've got a wrap-up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. Well, folks, thanks a million for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, Susan K. Williams-Smith was with us in the first segment from Columbus, Ohio, talking about her book, Rest for the Justice-Seeking Soul. And then we switched over to Tampa, and there Dr. Keenan Bridges joined us. School of the Miraculous, that was the discussion we had uh, about his book. Speaking of books... Uh, I've got a new one that's just come out. It's called uh, Lead. Uh, it's, it's a book about Walt Disney on leadership. Uh, Lead Like Walt is the name of it. HCI is the publisher. It's out now in bookstores in the business section. Uh, or go up to Amazon. Always a wonderful way to order books. Uh, Lead Like Walt. Uh, we're back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to the new AM 990. And FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. And uh, have a terrific week ahead. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.